You know, a desire that most human beings, maybe all human beings, but I don't, it's, it's not fair always to say everybody's this way, but I think a desire that most human beings share in common is that we have a desire for fairness. You know, fair, fairness seems to be kind of an intrinsic uh, desire that we are kind of hardwired in, uh, just to, by the very nature we are human beings and we're created in the image of God. In fact, usually there's a statement in our household uh, that probably rings very loudly and rings very regularly, and it's this statement, that's not fair. Anybody ever heard that? And, you know, especially parents raising it. That's not fair. And I actually, I've grown to appreciate that statement because it's such an opportune time to teach an important life lesson. And you know what that lesson is? Kids, life is not fair. <laughs> At least not in the way that you probably think of fairness or understand fairness. And, and so, uh, but the fact is, in our world today, it, people are screaming, people are uh, uh, determined to and really uh, justified in their minds for this kind of push for fairness. We may not use the word fair or fairness, but other more trendier terms, at least most recently, are terms like justice or equality or impartiality. And, and I, would, I would say that much of the unrest in our country today can be attributed to obviously legitimate injustice, as well as perceived injustice. You see, what makes people's cry for justice, however, so divisive, is that it's not just the the violent manner that some pursue it, but it's the fact that there are many perspectives of what justice actually is. There are many perspectives of what fairness is. So even though people want justice, we all want justice, we all want fairness, we all want equality or impartiality, it cannot be fully experienced and it cannot be attained. You know why? Because of conflicting definitions of what justice is and conflicting perspectives on how to implement it. So if we all have different ideas of what fairness or justice is, then we are all going to constantly be in this perpetual state of, well, it's still not just, it's still not fair, because we all come to differing conclusions as to what fairness actually is. And the fact is our passage this morning really contrasts kind of a subjective experience or a subjective perspective of justice, especially as opposed to God's definition of fairness or justice. You recall from chapter 19 of Matthew, the very last verse, Jesus says these words. It's kind of a heaven reality that we need to wrap our minds around. He says this, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then Jesus goes on or he, go, he proceeds to share a parable, to teach a parable to further emphasize, to further help the disciples understand what this kingdom reality means. So read along with me or listen along with me in Matthew chapter 20, and we'll read from verses 1 through verse 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work, 
At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw that some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them that he would pay whatever was right at the end of the day. So when the work, so they went to work in the vineyard. And at noon and at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And at five o'clock in the afternoon, he was in town again and saw some other people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because no one has hired us. The landlord told them, go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and, and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at, the five, at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner, those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Just to give you a quick overview of how the sermon's kind of uh, going to unfold for us this morning. First of all, I just want to bring, kind of highlight some observations about this parable. Uh, Michelle already kind of did that for us a little bit, but I'll just bring some further explanation or observation. Uh, and then we're going to answer this question, well, what does it mean? Because again, the proper order of reading a text is to first make careful observation, and then we go right into making accurate interpretation. So we go, what does it say? What does it mean? And then we will end by what does it mean to me, which is our application. So let's make some observations here about this parable so that we have a fuller understanding of what Jesus is teaching us here. I think at first, when I first read this parable, much like you listening to it or reading it, it seems pretty straightforward, right? The landowner goes out at the beginning of the day and he hires these day laborers to work in his vineyard. And this would have started about 6 a.m. Again, a typical day for that, that time period was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was the work day. It was a 12-hour work day. And he goes out, he gets some day laborers, and they come and they start working. And, of course, the typical wage was a denarius, which is basically, you know, uh, it, was, it wasn't minimum payment or minimum wage or anything. It was basically a wage that everyone would expect. Even a soldier was paid that for their services. And so obviously the landowner maybe just thinks, hey, you know what? There's not enough workers in my vineyard. So he goes out to the marketplace at nine o'clock and he goes out again at noon and he goes in again at three and he's constantly bringing in more and more workers, all with the, uh, the promise that I will pay you fairly a day's wage. He even goes out to the market at 5 p.m. This is an hour before quitting time, and he rallies a few more workers. In fact, he even asks the question, well, what are you doing just standing around here? And they're literally just saying, no one has hired us yet. And so he has, gen- he has kind of a-, a generous or a compassion for them, and so he hires them just to work one more hour, and then it's now 6 p.m. He pays everybody, starting with the people that started last all the way to the first, and then we have these people that come in 
oh, the people that only worked an hour got a whole day's wage, guess what? No doubt we will be more than compensated for what we did. Because after all, we worked 12 hours in the scorching heat, and that's what we are deserved, right? That's what, that would be the fair thing to do, right? Well, according to this parable, everyone receives the exact wage, regardless of the amount of hours they worked in the day. Now, I want to just kind of say time out for a second. Put yourself in their sandals for a moment and go, how would you respond to the landowner? Or maybe, how would you regard the people that came and only helped pick up at the end of the day? Would you be like, yeah, I like those people. I'm glad they got a full day's wage. I believe, you know, as I read this, this parable, as I read this text, I go, man, I can kind of identify a little bit with these people that have been working all day and in the scorching heat, so no doubt they're alluding to the fact that they are exhausted, they are wore out, and they start grumbling to the landowner, basically accusing him that the landowner, what he did was unfair. It was not just but then you, you see how the landowner responds to them. And he, he responds in a very respectful manner. He says, friend, I've done nothing wrong. And he paid him exactly what they agreed upon at the very beginning of the day. And then he asks two rhetorical questions that says, basically, am I not lawfully free to do whatever I want with my resources, with my money? Am I not right to be generous? Are you right to be jealous? I think an important observation we need to make from this parable because I think we can sometimes, I think oftentimes we can read parables or situations like this and we read it through our lens, right? We read it through our lens, but we need to understand it from a first century Palestinian lens for just a moment. First of all, we should not conclude that these hired workers, especially the ones that got hired at 5 p.m., we should not make the conclusion that they were lazy, we can oftentimes maybe kind of go, well, yeah, you know, the, the really devout ones, they were hired first, obviously, and they, the other ones finally basically strolled in. But we should not make the conclusion that they were lazy. They were just waiting for someone to hire them. When I lived down in Long Beach, California, um, I was helping remodel a house, and so I'd go to this particular uh, hardware store very often. And it was not uncommon to, to go into the hardware store, and there would be a whole group of people just standing around waiting as day laborers to be hired for the day. And uh, sometimes the guys would roll up in a truck and say, hey, I need two workers all day, and two workers would hop in, and, it, and the rest of them would still be standing around just waiting for someone to hire them. That was their daily routine. Sometimes they never got hired. And in the case here, sometimes workers did not get hired. Which brings me to another observation in Old Testament, Old Testament law required that each person was paid every single day at the end of the day. And as a day laborer, unlike what we have maybe today, we have bank accounts and we have savings and all this kind of stuff, they are absolutely dependent upon a daily workday so they can have a daily wage because without a daily wage, guess what? They don't eat. So again, put yourself in the sandals of some of these workers that are standing there and it's now it's 3 o'clock, now it's 4 o'clock, now it's 5 o'clock, and I have yet to be hired. You know what that means? That means I go home empty-handed 
and my family doesn't eat the next day. So no doubt, as the day progresses, they are probably becoming increasingly more anxious, going, am I going to be able to feed my family today? And as we can at least see in this parable, the landowner comes and says, you know what? I'm going to pay you a full day's wage as well, even though you did not work all day. And of course, this makes some of the workers jealous because it seems unfair. The question is, what is Jesus trying to teach through this parable? What does this parable mean? Well, first of all, we need to understand that this parable is not a class on biblical economics. In other words, we should not use this as our kind of jump-off point to, to uh, learn best biblical practices on fair compensation for your business or something. So we've got to kind of clear the air. Sometimes we can allude to Scripture that is kind of completely taken out of context. So the question is, what is the context? Well, the context is at the very end of chapter 19, when Jesus says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now why in the world would Jesus say that? Because of all, when you look back at chapter 19 of Matthew, you see this contrast, the kinds of people that God accepts and the kinds of people that God rejects. And again, we see this contrast of little children, helpless, dependent, fully uh, dependent upon their parents to provide everything. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. But what about the rich ruler who has everything and he's, a, he's, he's highly uh, respected in his community and Jesus rejects him. So in other words, we have this kingdom reality, this kingdom value at play here where God's in, no, I receive the little children, this childlike faith, but I reject the religious person. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. But like every parable, which is basically a made-up story to emphasize a spiritual truth, we need to identify certain, certain characters and certain details are all intended or included on purpose. And I believe that this parable that Jesus teaches us here represents some spiritual truth or spiritual connections. So for example, the vineyard. What does the vineyard represent in this parable, this made-up story? What spiritual emphasis is being highlighted here? I believe the vineyard represents the kingdom of heaven. We see that the landowner represents God the Father. The foreman represents Jesus Christ himself. The day laborers are Christians, those who have been called by God. This denarius or the, the, daily, the day wage that they all received was salvation. The workday represents a person's or a Christian's lifetime. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, it represents eternity. This is the parable that Jesus is unpacking for his disciples. You see, the kingdom reality that Jesus is driving home here is that everyone comes to faith in Jesus, or everyone who does come to faith in Jesus Christ receives the same gift of salvation regardless of when that occurs. Everyone who comes to Jesus, receives the same benefit 
of salvation. The person who's been walking with Jesus for 80 years, maybe devout in their ministry, devout in their faithfulness, has the same salvation benefits as the person who, in a sense, had a deathbed conversion. To put a biblical uh, illustration to this, I was thinking of Samuel. Samuel, he was given to God by his mother Hannah at a very young age. His whole life, he was a prophet on behalf of God, a spokesman on behalf of God, walked with God, and yet he has the same salvation benefits as the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross, we don't know much about his backstory, but he is dying a criminal's death. We could maybe uh, kind of assert the fact that maybe he has lived a long life of just really not following God at all, and yet both receive equally the same benefits of salvation. Or to put it in another way, the same person, maybe the Christian who has a a relatively easy life, everything just kind of goes their way, has the same benefits as the person who died a martyr's death. And John MacArthur makes a great contrast when he says, believing tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, and social outcasts will have the same heavenly residence as Paul, Augustine, Luther, and Wesley. They all receive the same salvation benefits. Now the question we might ask is this, does this seem right? Does this seem fair? I mean, after all, isn't maybe the the death of a martyr more noble and, and, and more pleasing to God? Well, here's the biblical truth. First, we, we must understand that, yes, God does reward his children for their faithfulness. He does. Scripture promises that. We see in Revelation 22, for example, uh, where Jesus says this, Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. Paul says this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, On judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. But the builder will be saved like someone barely escaping through the wall of flames. We see in Matthew chapter 19, just just most recently, When Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you, and Jesus responds in this way. He says, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So the point is this. Yes, there is reward for one's faithfulness. Yes, there are crowns that we are promised for one's faithfulness. We are also called or told that we will just throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus because it's not really about the crowns. We are rewarded for our faithfulness in heaven, but when it comes to salvation, brothers and sisters, when it comes to, in a sense, the initial acceptance of God, we must understand as this theme keeps recirculating and keeps being reemphasized over and over and over again that salvation is totally undeserved. That salvation cannot be earned. That it is entirely a gift from God. Your acceptance before God has nothing to do with you. Doesn't matter how amazingly gifted you are, how much you bring to the table, 
What you do for God, your acceptance with God has nothing to do with you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The very definition of grace means that you cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. You cannot do anything for it. You are just a, glad, a, a grateful recipient of it. That's why in Titus 3.5 it says, God saved us not because of works of righteousness by us, but according to his mercy. That is the basis on which we have received the righteousness of God. We've received the salvation that God so freely gives. It's nothing to do with us. It's everything to do with God. I think even more amazing, however, is that our salvation is God's gracious gift to us despite who we are. Salvation is a gift from God in spite of who we are and what we have done, right? We are already told in Scripture because we like to think of ourselves better than we really are, but Scripture tells us that you're actually worse than you really are. You're worse than you realize. And what you deserve is eternal punishment. I mean, think about that. God blesses you and He saves you from eternal punishment even though that's exactly what you deserve. The Bible even says that we were enemies of God. I love Romans chapter 5. I mean, obviously you're supposed to love the whole Bible. I understand that and I do. But, but I love Romans 5 because it talks about, you know, one will kind of maybe die for a righteous person, but here's the love of God on display, right? The love of God is on display in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners and we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So, if you want to talk about fairness, don't look to the gospel. Because the gospel is the opposite of fairness. The gospel is not fair. Because if God were to give us what we actually deserve and to be fair, none of us would be here right now. We would have nothing to celebrate because we would still be dead in our sins. But it's also why I'm so very grateful and I know you are very grateful. I'm so grateful that God does not give us what we deserve. I'm grateful that God, that, that he, he doesn't do what is fair but he actually does what is unfair and shows us grace instead of justice, mercy instead of wrath, Divine relationship instead of eternal isolation. Heaven instead of hell. You see, the grace of God is the most unfair but glorious gift offered to all people. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So what is this parable to mean for us? We understand it. It's pretty straightforward. We get what Jesus is kind of saying. We, here's what it says. Here's what it means. But what does it mean for you and for me? How do we respond to this message? I think there's only one appropriate response when we are reminded afresh 
of God's goodness, especially in light of our badness. And I know this statement has been kind of catchier and said many times over, but it's very much appropriate. The only appropriate response is the attitude of gratitude. It's an attitude of thankfulness. It's an attitude that says, Lord, thank you for doing for me what I could not do for myself. I mean, just think, brothers and sisters, church family, just think about this. Reflect on this just for a moment. God saved you. Just reflect on it. God saved you. That means you needed to be saved. That means you were dying, you were desperate, whether you realized it or not, but God saved you and he called you into his kingdom and he's lavished you with privileges of being his child to being a citizen of heaven. And when you stop just for a moment to reflect on that truth that God saved me, God saved me. I know me. God knows me even more. And yet God still says, I love you. And I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to save you. And you're going to be my child. And I'm going to glorify myself through you. The fact is, brothers and sisters, everything you are, everything you have, everything you hope to become or hope to accomplish is all because of God's grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not first receive? But even as Michelle kind of alluded to, how subtly and even unconsciously that overwhelming gratitude can begin to dissipate, right? You know, it's amazing the the stark contrast there is with someone who comes to Christ and that initial you know, season of conversion in their life, they're just, all they want to talk about, it's like, God saved me! It's amazing! God's grace is amazing! And those who have been walking as Christians for a long time, like, yeah, I know, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm thankful for it. I mean, what happened? What happened? You know, last week, we highlighted the church of Laodicea, The church of Laodicea, though had some things to commend, there were other things that were not good about that church, and they were a rich church. They were a wealthy church. They thought they had no need of anything, and and what is said is, you were actually poor, naked, blind, and pitiful. This morning, we have the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to the words to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So far, so good. But, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. IBC family, those of you who are streaming in, have you forgotten from where you have fallen? Have you abandoned your first love? Has the the fact that God supernaturally initiated and pursued and saved you, has that just become kind of convenient news rather than all-consuming glorious news? Do you wake up just so overwhelmingly Overwhelming, overwhelmed with gratitude that man I cannot believe that God loves me and saved me perhaps maybe we have taken the grace of God for granted we have uh, as a leadership decided to observe communion uh, like first, the first of every month just because of logistics mostly. And, uh, and it'll just be a temporary thing until all this COVID stuff kind of moves on. But after going through my sermon, even yesterday morning, I was like, oh man, we have got to celebrate communion. We have got to observe and come back. This, this is who we are. And so we're gonna celebrate communion right now together and we have these convenient little packages I don't want to take away from the spirit of what the spirit of God is doing in you, but at the same time, be careful as you open these. There's a little wafer on the top. There's juice on a second flap below. But let's keep focused on what we're talking about. Brothers and sisters, IBC family, children of God, think about this. God loves you. God and his love has saved you. Because God loves you, even though you, from our perspective or someone else's perspective, were probably unlovable, as scripture says you were enemies of God, that is the state in which Christ pursued you. Brothers and sisters, we have an amazing God who shows his love through Jesus Christ ultimately by Jesus Christ dying on a cross, a criminal's death, so that we could live. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? We stand eternally at peace with Creator God, and it's all because of what Jesus fulfilled and accomplished on the cross. The question in my mind, as I was reflecting this past week, was this. How do I know I'm a grateful person? Again, if gratitude is kind of the, the sign of, of someone who's really uh, very aware of their guilt, but very aware of God's grace, if gratitude is kind of that litmus test, how do I know I'm a grateful person? What is the visible mark of someone who has the attitude of gratitude versus or in contrast with a person who has maybe abandoned their first love. 
I believe it's in the way in which we treat and relate to one another. The way in which you know, the way in which is kind of confirmed to you that you are overwhelmed in a good way by the grace of God in your life is the way in which you relate to one another. You see, a person filled with gratitude for God's grace in their lives relates to and treats others with the same kind of grace. Because gratitude influences every aspect about us. It influences what we do. It influences how we live. It it influences how we worship. It influences the manner in which we serve. It influences everything about us. Michael Wilkins, one of my professors in seminary, says this in his commentary. The person who has received the mercy and forgiveness of God will have the deepest sense of thankfulness for the new life he or she has received and in turn will extend mercy and forgiveness to others as a natural response. The ability to pardon, listen to this, the ability to pardon comes from the eternal loving act of grace Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. The key to doing this is to stop focusing on what others have done for us or to us and to focus instead on what Jesus has done for us. You see, the way in which we relate to one another, maybe even especially our spouse, tells us the kind of gratitude we have and the kind of grace that we are overwhelmed with that God has so freely given. 